as Chris mentioned, um, we're continuing on after a brief hiatus, looking at silence and solitude, back into uh, the book of Matthew. And we're going to be looking at chapter 6, just a couple verses this morning, uh, 16 through 18. And I want to put you uh, in a scenario. Imagine this. Uh, you're living out in Seattle, and uh, you happen to be living fairly ne near the Gates Mansion out there. And uh, all of a sudden, you're, dri you're driving for Uber, right? And so you're driving around, and you see a poster up on a tree, and uh, Fluffy Melinda's dog is missing, right? And uh, Melinda loves this dog, and she, she really loves this dog. And a substantial reward, a six-figure reward is offered for the return of Fluffy. And in all your driving, you remember seeing a little fluffy shih tzu, you know, that has periodically gotten out, and you see there's a little place under their gate in their massive compound where this dog could get out. And so what you would probably do is not drive for Uber that day, right? Since you've seen Fluffy, you know, wow, I think there's a dog down the street that Fluffy may go visit. And uh, so you say, I think I'm going to get into that place. And then to get to that place, it's kind of down a hill. You know you're going to get scratched up. It's going to result in a little bit of pain. But you recognize, man, the reward is definitely worth whatever pain, whatever briars and thorns I have to go through. Maybe I have to get a T-bone to get Fluffy out of there. But man, it's going to be worth it because I know Bill loves Melinda and I know Melinda loves this dog and I know they've got the resources to pay out this reward. Well, we're going to be looking at a passage in Scripture where we deal with someone whose resources are infinitely greater than Bill Gates. Infinitely greater. And this one whose resources are infinitely greater, he's seeking something. And he's willing to reward that seeking with, we don't know exactly what, but since he's got such amazing resources, we know that reward is going to be good. Yet, so many of us just say, eh, never mind. We're going to be looking at a practice this morning, and it's kind of interesting. We've just gotten out of looking at spiritual practice of silence and solitude. And when we end up back in Matthew, we're right at another spiritual practice or discipline. And this discipline, like prayer and like giving, is one of those disciplines that God says, you know what? If you practice this, Jesus says, your Father is going to reward you. Yet unlike giving and unlike praying, this is one of these practices that most modern believers are like, nah, uh-uh, not for me. Even though God promises this reward, it's like, yeah, this, this is not for me. You know, we look at this and it's like, oh, it's kind of weird, maybe even Catholic, maybe monkish, you know, just strange people do this thing, but not me. Yet it's a practice that until probably the 18th century, most of the church was engaged in in pursuing their relationship with God and deepening their intimacy with Christ. And it's something that I think maybe we wouldn't even be here had not the first kind of multi-ethnic, multicultural church in Antioch said, we're going to do this because we want to see this great gospel of Jesus Christ presented to the world, but we're not exactly sure how to do that. So 
the leadership in that church from all over the world at that point in time that were gathered together in Antioch said, we're going to do this so that God can show us the direction that he wants us to go. And this practice basically is at the foundation of the missionary movement of the church. So you and I may not be sitting here today unless the leadership in Antioch took this seriously. So let's look at what Jesus has to say, starting in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 6. And when you fast, so what's the practice? Fasting, right? Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So just a brief section of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. We're picking back up in Matthew, and if you haven't been here for a while, this is the section of Matthew where Jesus is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's sharing what it means to be a participant in his kingdom. He's the king is here, basically, I am the king, and this is what it means to follow me. And so he's laying that out, and we recognize that kingdom is available to all those who are poor in spirit, who recognize they have a need for God. And so this kingdom, then he lays it out, this is what I want you to be about. This is how I want you to live. And we looked at the Lord's Prayer as we finished up Matthew before, before we entered into this time of silence and solitude, not specifically, but, you know, talking about it, which is kind of oxymoronic, right? <laughs> Anyhow, and now we pick up in this, this practice of fasting. And as we've been going through giving and prayer, there's been a consistent theme here. Jesus is saying, hey, I don't want you to do your spiritual life like the religious leaders are doing it. He doesn't say that giving and praying and fasting are bad, but he says those can be done in such a way that it is bad, or that when you do them, God, in essence, pays no attention to it, and the only attention you may get is from other people who are impressed with your religiosity. And he says in all of these practices, there were the group of religious Jews who were practicing these things to be seen by other people, right? And fasting is no different here. At this stage in the church, the Jews, at that time, the religious ones, would fast twice a week. They'd fast on Monday, and they'd fast on Thursday. And if you would fast, normally, and it's like, don't anoint yourself, literally anoint yourself with oil or your head with oil, and you know, don't disfigure your faces. What the religious leaders would do at that time, I guess it was normal in the morning in that culture, you, know, you put a little olive oil in your hair and on, on your face, and so you know, when your face is shining, that's just like normal practice. So when these religious leaders would fast, they wouldn't do that. So everybody look like, like we'd say, dude, take a shower, man. It's just it's not that great. Put on deodorant, take a shower, comb your hair, okay, just look presentable. But they would purposely look in such a way that people would notice, man, what happened to you? And disfiguring their faces, there's not total clarity on what that means, but they would often put ashes on their face to let other people know that they were serious and somber. So, so these Jews would, would say, okay, it's the day to fast, you know? And, and we want to let everybody know how spiritual we are, how in control of our bodies that we are. So we're going to let everybody know we're fasting. 
So they may have defeated this kind of desire of the flesh that made them hungry, but what they replaced that with was spiritual pride. And if you've read much of C.S. Lewis, he says the sins of the flesh are mere flea bites compared to the sins of pride and self-righteousness and those kind of things. So that was what was happening in Jesus' day. And so Jesus says, okay, I don't want you to fast in that way, right? He says, when you fast, just, again, look normal. Don't walk around and it's like, oh, my stomach is growling so much. Brett, why is your stomach growling? I'm fasting for the Lord today. <laughs> so much so that I couldn't take a shower in the morning. I'm just so serious about my relationship with God. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. You do that and you have received your reward in full. But he says, when you fast. Notice he doesn't say, if you fast. He says, when you fast, so Jesus is not saying, I'm against fasting. The way the Pharisees and the religious leaders are doing it is crazy. Don't fast at all. But he says, no, the way they're doing it is the problem, not the actual practice itself. So what is fasting? And I'm looking at the clock and recognize, I'm going to get through like half of this. Chris talked so long this morning. <laughs> so, so I'm not going to try and push through this, this whole thing. I'm going to purposely slow down. We've got communion in the the meeting afterwards, but what is fasting? And in our culture, day and age, some fasting is kind of hip, right? Intermittent fasting is one of the big things, right? And, and why do we do it? We intermittently fast so that we don't gain weight or so that we lose weight, so we get cut and ripped and all, all those kind of things. That's not what is being talked about here in, in terms of biblical fasting. It's also not for the purpose of detoxifying our bodies, right? We can go on a cleansing fast. Some people do that. That is also not what Scripture is talking about when it talks about fasting. We also see in our world today, sometimes people who are often incarcerated unjustly, they will go on what? A hunger strike, a fast. In essence, that fast is designed to force somebody to act in a particular way. That is also not biblical fasting. I don't fast in essence, to say, God, you've got to do now what I want you to do. I'm requiring this of you, and because I've done this, you have to act in that way. I've read a bunch of books on fasting recently, and to me, the definition of fasting I like best is abstaining from food, sometimes water too, for a spiritual purpose. So abstaining from food, not so I lose weight, not because of any selfish reason, but for a spiritual purpose. I'm doing this to connect with God. And as we look at all these disciplines, we recognize there's a danger in any of these that the discipline becomes the focus and not the goal of that discipline. So this, like prayer, like community, like all of the disciplines is meant to draw us into God's presence and for us to experience him in a deeper and richer way. So when the Bible talks about fasting, it's talking about I'm setting aside food, sometimes water, for a particular period of time in order to draw into God, to draw closer to God. If you look through Scripture, you see tons of people in Scripture that fast. Moses, David, Elijah, Esther, Nehemiah, Daniel, Anna the prophetess, Jesus, Paul, the early church leaders. So it seems to be a practice that lots of people in the Bible did. 
It was done for various lengths of time. The most common fast was typically the day fast. From sunup to sundown, you would fast. That's probably the fast that the Jewish leaders did on Monday and Thursday. From sunup to sundown, they would not eat food. Typically, they would drink water during that time. And we have some fasts in Scripture that are three days. Remember after Paul was struck on the Damascus Road by this great light, he fasted and didn't drink for three days. That's about the maximum length of time you can go without water. And the book of Esther describes this as well. Remember, Esther, she's the queen, and Mordecai and Haman, there's that whole thing going on, and Haman has gotten the king to issue the order to kill all the Jews, and Mordecai goes to Esther and says, hey, Esther, you're the only one that maybe can stop this. And she's like, I can't go into the king's presence because if I'm not invited, he can just say, off with her head and I'm done. And Mordecai's like, well, maybe you're in this position for this very reason. And so Esther says, hey, okay, I'm willing to do it. And that famous line, if I die, I die. If I perish, I perish. But I want all the Jews for the next three days to go without food and water and fast before I go in and see the king. And then you see basically three 40-day fasts in Scripture. Moses has one, Elijah has another, and as we looked at earlier in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has a 40-day fast. And so if you look at hunger strikes, you realize about the max length we can go without food is 45 or 50 days. So that's pushing it. So it's either a supernaturally kind of designed fast, and it was only for those three people. And it's interesting to me that it's those three people. You have Moses, the giver of the law. You have Elijah, the leader of the prophets, basically. And you have Jesus, the giver of the gospel. So these three major figures all fasted for 40 days. As you look through the Old Testament, there's only one mandated day of fast in the Old Testament. Anybody know what that is? Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. It was one day a year that was required to fast. And I love that because it's only one day. There's plenty of feasts, but there was only one fast. But that changed by the time of Zechariah. If you look at Zechariah 7.4 or 8.19, you realize that by that time there were four fasts during the year. And like I said, and then by Jesus' time, it had come down to two fasts a week that the religious leaders were saying made you a good Jewish person. So it's a normal part of a spiritual walk, it seems to be, in Scripture. And if you look at it, it seems to be that it's practiced by most people that are wanting to push into their relationship with God. In the Didache, which is an early writing of the church, probably the end of the first century, most people date it there. The writer says, you know, the hypocrites, they fast on Monday and Thursday. You fast Wednesdays and Fridays. So I love that. The early church is not, fasting is unimportant. We don't want you to do it like the the Jews. So we're going to switch our days. We're going to be different than they are. So it seemed to be that was part and parcel of walking with God among the early church, this fast. There's something in 380 that's written basically, and it says if the leaders of the church don't fast twice a week, they should be subject to discipline. So it's interesting that, you know, I've taken an informal poll this week talking to people in the church and say, hey, do you fast? 
It's like, well, not really, or I did it once and it was really bad, <laughs> you know, and it's like, hey, you know, so it's probably, and I was listening to another church, like, okay, 98% of the church didn't fast. So I'm not saying this to lay a heavy guilt trip on you. This is not something that I practiced for a long time in my Christian life. But it is something that I do regularly do right now. And I'm not going to tell you how I do it or why I do it because I don't want you to be following me. I want you to be following the Holy Spirit if he leads you to fast in a particular way. But it just seems that Jesus assumes this is going to be part of your walk with him. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 9, some of the disciples of John come to Jesus and says, you know, why do we and the Pharisees fast but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus says to them, verse 15 of chapter 9, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So what is Jesus saying there? It's like, okay, there's a kind of unique period in history that's going on right now, because I, the bridegroom, am here. And so this is not a time for fasting. This is a time for great joy because the bridegroom is here. You don't go to a wedding and they're saying, hey, we're not serving any food at the reception because we're all going to be fasting. No, that's not a time for fasting, right? It's a time for celebration and feasting. And Jesus is saying, I'm here. So during this time, it's not a time for fasting. But when I am taken away, then they will fast. And again, to me, it's not clearly commanded here, but it is assumed. This is what is going to happen. And for a long time in my Christian life, I said, I don't really like to fast. So when Jesus is taken away, that's just the, you know, Friday through Sunday. So it's just a brief point in history, and now we don't fast anymore, right? Because my fasts early on were generally not that positive. And I've talked about this before. I would be hangry by the time I got home, barking at my wife and my kids, just wanting to go to bed and get this dumb day done with. I'd check the religious box. I fasted. And then I encountered Isaiah 58. And it's, you know, it's all about in there. It's like you're fasting, but then you're mistreating other people. And it's like, this is not the kind of fast that God's going to listen to. And it's like, okay, I'm just going to not fast at all. My attitude has changed, but there was a period in time where I really struggled with that. So Jesus, to me, seems to be assuming this is going to be part of what it means to pursue Christ and to walk with him in our life. We see it practiced in the New Testament. Like I said, that passage in Acts 13 where the leaders in Antioch, they are worshiping and fasting. And during that time, the Holy Spirit says to them, set apart Barnabas and Paul for the mission work I'm calling them to. So you look at the mission to Europe, basically, and our part of the world, it started back then when a group of leaders in that church said, we, we really want to see this gospel penetrate. How in the world is this going to happen? So they said, we're taking this this seriously, that we're going to fast and worship and seek the Lord's guidance and direction on this. And then somehow in that time, and I'm not exactly sure how the Holy Spirit spoke, he said, Paul and Barnabas are the guys. Send them out. And that's how the whole mission endeavor of the church started out of Antioch. So that's what fasting is. But why would you do it? The first, and it's a point that I've just made, is that Jesus seems to expect us to do this. Again, I don't think you can come to that place where it doesn't say you must fast, but Jesus' assumption is that you're just going to fast. 
When I'm gone, you will fast. And when you do it, do it in a particular way. And again, to me, there's, there's a challenge here because you see in 1 Timothy 4 that there was a group of false teachers that were requiring abstinence from food as if that would make you holy. And so you can get really legalistic on this and this is what you have to do. And I think even in the early church when they're mandating, okay, if you're not fasting twice a week, you're not a good Christian or you're not fit for leadership, that's, to me, that's going beyond what Scripture has said. Jesus says when you fast, but he gives no direction as far as I can say and see in Scripture. And Augustine agreed in terms of how often we do it, what our practice should be, how long it should, should go. But the reality is that that's assumed, but there are dangers associated with it like any practice, I think. And we're going to get into that a little bit next week as we talk about some of the dangers of fasting. But it seems to me that Jesus expects that this is going to be a part of our Christian life. And a caveat here, first, if you've got medical issues, I know some people have to eat when they're taking medications. I know people struggle with eating disorders, all that kind of stuff. To me, focus on those things. Get doctor's approval first. Get help and counsel there before you push into this. I don't want to exacerbate a problem. And again, I don't think this is mandated in Scripture. I think this is something that's like silence and solitude. That is like, man, this seemed to be something that was important to Jesus. It seems to be very beneficial spiritually for us. So this is maybe something I want to walk into. But if you can't, I don't want to lay a huge guilt trip on you that, okay, this doesn't work for me because whatever medical condition I have or my relationship with food is not that right now. So don't hear that from me. But for most of us who are able to do this, and we can probably miss a meal or two without you know, being severely impacted by that, that this is something I think Jesus just assumes that we're, as believers and followers of him, we're going to do. The second reason that I think we should do it is that we're promised a reward. And if you look at this section of Scripture here, you look at verse 4 of chapter Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. He says, So that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Then verse 6, But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Then verse 18, That your fasting may not be seen by others, by your, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You see a theme there. <laughs> to do these things in secret, and then there, you will be rewarded by your Father. There's a teaching sometimes in Christianity that what we do has to be completely altruistic. If there's any benefit for us in it, somehow it's sub-Christian. The problem with that is that's more platonic and ascetic, and you know, it's, it's, Scripture is full of incentives for us to obey God. And we talked about that in Sunday school class this morning. To me, I am a mixture of motives, right? And one of the things that motivates me, and to me, that's one of the reasons I'm a Christian, is because not being a Christian is going to put me in a situation with my father that I don't want to be in. So it's what I call enlightened self-interest here. And when we hear, oh, if I give, if I pray, if I fast, I'm going to be rewarded, we tend to think of, wow, there's going to be a big check that shows up in my bank account. Or, you know, that's not necessarily, that can happen. 
I've talked to people who that has happened to, but it's not a, like I said, this is not a hunger strike. I'm forcing God's hand in a particular way in my life. But it's the reality, and it's what the author of Hebrews says, that when we come to God, what? We need to believe that he exists and that he is what? The rewarder of those who seek him. Some translations say earnestly seek him. And so to me, this is one of these things where it's like, okay, Lord, I want to be one that, that seeks you, right? I want to be one that pushes into my relationship with you, and I want to experience the blessing of that. You know, and I think the blessing of that comes from an increased intimacy with God. We get to know Jesus better, and then we experience more the fruit of his spirit in our lives. How much would people in our culture pay for love, joy, and peace? I'll just say those three things. If those were a consistent part of it, and I think those are some of the ways in which God rewards us as we seek to follow Christ in these ways. So again, to me, I'm not, oh, you gotta do this, but it's like this is something that God says, this is what I'm gonna reward. You know, and it's like, yeah, there may be a little pain associated with it. Yeah, I may get cut up a little bit when I'm getting fluffy, but you know what? The payoff is going to be totally worth it. And that's what God is saying. The payoff is, is worth it. And then I'll close with this last one. Not my last benefit, but the last one I'll share about today. And this is to demonstrate with our bodies what we say is true of our hearts. What do we say as believers? That we value our relationship with Christ more than anything else. And I think when we set aside a time to fast, what we are saying is, God, my relationship with you is worth more, and I'm more hungry for you than the very food that I eat. And I'm showing that with my body. I'm saying this is significant and important. John Piper's written a book on fasting called Hunger for God, and in it he says, what we hunger for most, we worship. I think that's really true. And so, to me, one of the things that fasting does in our life is it reorients our hungers, our desires. Say, Lord, I want to hunger for you more than I hunger for whatever else that I'm pursuing in life. And I think we talked about the parable of the soils last week. And in Mark, he talks about, you know, it's that soil, the plant that grows up and it's choked out. And it's choked out, Mark says, by three things. It's choked out by the cares or the worries of this world, by the deceitfulness of wealth or riches, and by the desire for other things. And it's like, to me, it's that desire for other things. It's like, it doesn't say bad things. But when we value other things more than we value God, then that can become problematic in our lives. And I think when we fast, it can, it can reorient our hungers and our desires and say, this is what I desire more than anything. And I want to show this with more than just my words, but with my body. It's Jesus, I want you more than the very bread that I eat. Remember the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman? And he goes and the disciples go into town and she's at the well and She's amazed that a Jew is talking to her, a Gentile, and, and she's a woman and all that kind of stuff. And, and the disciples come back with a chow and they're astounded that Jesus is talking to this A woman and obviously a woman that's not the best reputation and he hasn't eaten. 
And they're like, oh, what in the world is he doing, you know? And Jesus says, after talking to them a bit, he says, you know, I have food to eat that you know nothing of. And that's to do what my father wants me to do. And I think when we fast, we can show kind of this earnestness, God, I really want you more than all the other stuff that sometimes intrudes in my life. And if you read much of people who fast, it seems to be that when we say no to this this desire of our flesh in this way, and we realize, you know what, I can say no to this, and I don't die, you know? I make it through the day. Yeah, my stomach may grumble, there may be a little pain, but it's, it's really not, you know, horrible. Then we learn when those other desires of the flesh rear their other head, ugly head, we can say, you know what, I, it's a little bit easier to say no to those things as well. This is so counterculture in our culture, right? Because what does our culture say? We are here, we're simply blobs of tissue, here to satisfy our desires for as many years as we have, and then we're going back to becoming worm food, and it's just all over, so maximize pleasure, minimize pain, right? Quote, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. It's not working that great in our world, is it, right? But the reality is that any desire I have, the world is saying, you need to satisfy that, and you need to satisfy that right now. And we live in a consumer culture where that advertisement is presented every moment. You need this to be satisfied and tell you what, you don't have enough money for that? We'll put you on the 72-month payment plan and you can have it right now. So give in to that desire. So we are taught that our desires need to be kind of always there and need to be always satisfied and need to be always satisfied very quickly. And that's, that's the marinade that we grow up in, right? And so this practice is going to push back against that and say, you know what, you can't say no to your desire without dying. And again, the purposes of all these disciplines that are more disciplines of abstinence is not the focus on the abstinence, but this is a time where I can feast on God, where I can feast on my relationship with Jesus. All right, I've got a lot more, but that's where I want to end. And I just want to challenge you guys to read through this. And it just, to me, really, it, it struck me a couple years ago as I was reading through this stuff, it's like, okay, every Christian I know would say, man, we need to be giving. We're doing a Sunday school class. Part of it is handling our giving is really important. We need to be praying, right? We need to be fasting. Ah, not so much. That was for those really weird monk-type Christians back then. But as I'm looking through this, it's like, okay, you know. So I'm going to challenge you just to look at it and See what the Holy Spirit says to you. And we're going to talk more about this next week, but just this, Lord, I want my hunger for you to be greater than, as we, Chris, I think, read that Philippians 3 passage this morning, that the people of this world, their God is their stomach. And I don't think everybody in the world just operates to get food, but I think Paul's point is there. Their God is their appetites, their desire. Whatever drives them, that's what they have to have. And I think this practice of fasting periodically is something that helps us disengage from that. God, I don't want my God to be my stomach. I don't want to be pushed here, pushed there by whatever desires come into my heart and head at a moment. And I think when we set aside time for fasting, we more and more realize that, you know, with the Holy Spirit's help, I can say no to that stuff. And when I do, it doesn't kill me. In effect, it draws me closer to God and it's spiritually enabling and empowering.